Welcome to Filmy Girls Idolcast. Hit it!
Our opening song today was Hey, Je T'aime, taken from the Tigers live album. The Tigers Sounds in Coliseum recorded August 22, 1970 at the Denon Coliseum in Tokyo, a tennis arena which sat somewhere in the range of 10 to 12,000 people. It was torn down in 1989. When we left off at the end of the last episode, the funnies, the blazing hot garage band who had been burning down the jazz pieces of Kansai had become the Tigers. And the Tigers were just about to debut with a brand new style of music, heavily influenced by two of the most powerful women in Japanese art and entertainment at the time. Kawazoe Kajiko, aka Tantan, fashion designer and hostess with the mostess of Japan's premier salon Kianti, and Watanabe Misa, visionary talent agent and star maker. Under their watchful eyes, the scruffy rockers had been transformed into exotic and princely dreamboats, ready and waiting to whisk every young lady in the nation off to Fantasyland. To go with the new band name, the five members of the Tigers picked stage names. Three stuck with their old nicknames from the Kyoto era, bassist and bandleader, Tall, lanky Kishibe Osami remained long, tall Sally. Cute as a button drummer, Hitomi Minoru had long been known as P, and P he remained. And handsome, gentle rhythm guitarist Morimoto Taro was just Taro. The two youngest members were the wild cards, sensitive and artistic lead guitarist Takahashi Katsumi and reserved but ambitious lead singer Sawada Kenji. Takahashi Katsumi thought his name sounded way too plain Jane and boring. In Japan, Takahashi is a last name about as common as Smith or Jones. And so Takahashi Katsumi became Kahashi Katsumi, which is like way cooler. And for his nickname, he chose Topo, after Topo Jijo, the popular Italian mouse character. And Sawada Kanji chose Julie for his nickname after actress Julie Andrews. The Tigers used the new nicknames publicly, but in private, Topo remained the more intimate Katsumi, while Julie would forever be Sawada. Now, when the Tigers heard the song intended to be their debut single for the first time, Taro remembers thinking, uh, what the fuck is this? Boku ga marito when I encountered Mary, it was on a lonely, lonely rainy morning. She was hugging a doll from France, all by herself, the poor girl. I love you. The words I couldn't say. The memory of it had me crying. I can just picture their faces. Dolls from France? Are you kidding me? These were guys who had just a couple of months ago had been singing about not getting any satisfaction, baby. They were rock and roll. Topo, in particular, hated it. He derisively called it the Maruhen style, fairy tale style. But it had been decided, and there was nothing they could do about it they'd sign the contract. The new sound was being handled by the songwriting team of Hashimoto Jun, lyrics, and Sugimoto Koichi, music. The pair were two of the many freelance songwriters who hung around, yes, 
Chianti. Watanabe Misa didn't have to even leave her dinner table to find material for her new pet project. Hashimoto's father was a man named Yoda Junichi, a famous children's book author and expert in children's literature from way down south in Fukuoka. And intentionally or not, Hashimoto's lyrics were strongly influenced by his father's work, giving us that Maruhen imagery that Topo hated so much. Now, Sugimoto, on the other hand, you might remember him from the last episode. He was the television producer who gave the tigers their name, and he was a jazz guy. But when faced with the challenge of creating a new Japanese pop sound for this scruffy garage rock group, he turned to a man who had done the same thing with another group of scruffy garage rockers you might have heard of, Beatles producer George Martin. He was intrigued by George Martin's experiments with layering classical elements like string sections over top the basic rock setup of drums, bass, and guitar. Listen for yourself. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. I said so. delicate methodical style was unlike anything the pure rock and roll tigers had attempted before and it took them something like 30 takes to get it right when they went into the recording studio for the first time and 50 plus years later you can still hear how tentative they sound P's nervous drumming ticking away in the background like a stuttery clock the string section adds this sugary sticky gloss that holds all the pieces together but it's still an awkward fit but it was this song that the Tigers debuted with on February 5th, 1967. Boku no Mary. My Mary. And I'm gonna cut between the recording and a stage recording taken from the Tigers live album on stage, recorded in August 1967. And listen for the drums in the live version when they hit on Ai Shiteru. You can Feel that constrained energy and how badly P wants to rock on ahead and pick up the beat. Daite 
initial Maruhen Seikai fairy tale image and their actual live performances would be a major source of tension for as long as the tigers were together. Another source of tension that came up in the early days, tension that would eventually lead to the shattering of the band, was the two very different temperaments of Topo and Julie. Julie may have had a bold stage image, but off stage he was the opposite. Julie was more or less okay with doing whatever he had to do to remain in show business. If that meant goofy comedic skits on variety shows and singing about dolls from France, you know, so be it. He'd do it with a smile. Topol was the exact opposite. Julie played along with the idol persona, telling the teen magazines he couldn't date just one girl when he belonged to all of Japan. Topol started dating Miss Japan, 1968, Ino Yasuo, telling the teen magazines that life was empty without love. Topol had strong opinions about art and about the world and was not afraid to let you know about them. His unhappiness and resentment at the box he'd been shoved into would simmer under the surface for years before finally boiling over in spectacular fashion. In the Tiger's biography, the author mentions a particular memorable early fight over a cover of the Trog's Wild Thing that had Topol stalking off from their dorm to wander the streets all night. He would return sheepishly in the morning, but it would not be the only time that this happened. Looking back now, having been in my own share of intraband fights and knowing the way that these small things can seem so large, there's something really quite precious about a bunch of young 20-year-old men fighting bitterly with their careers as musicians on the line over a cover of one of the stupidest songs ever written. All through this debut period, they were still living in their tiny dorm, relatively unknown. They cleaned, cooked, took lessons in music, singing, dancing, 
and performed with their old friend Uchida Yuya on the jazz Kisaten circuit. They were friendly with the fans that they did have. Girls would even sometimes ride home on the train with them, or pop by their dorm with food. But all of this changed with the release of their second single on May 5th, 1967, the up-tempo megabop Seaside Bound. Seaside Bound was again written by the team of Sugimoto and Hashimoto, but rather than the exotic fairy tale imagery of dolls from France, it had lyrics about going dancing at the beach. It was a raucous, certified, sing-along, dance-along, bop. Much more in line with what the Tigers had been doing back in Osaka than Boku no Mary. With a peppy eighth note rhythm, P on drums, backed up by Julie on percussion, you can't help but nod your head and tap your toes along with the beat. I dare you. Try not to tap your toes. They even had a little dance that goes with it. And the verses also feature Sally's deep bass voice, harmonizing underneath Julie's lead. So listen for that, and then don't forget to do the fan chants. Go Bound! Japan's first rock and roll hit, and it sold more than 400,000 copies. The Tigers hadn't even been in Tokyo for six months, but almost overnight, the handful of fans who used to drop by with gifts of food turned into a tsunami. Literally hundreds of girls would clutter the sidewalks around the Tigers' dorm, peering into their windows and annoying the neighbors. The police would have to be called to try to get the girls to disperse. The Tigers didn't have a personal phone in their dorm. Personal phones were not universal in the 60s. So girls would simply call up the landlord at all hours of the day and night. The official fan club boomed, and an unofficial network of Tigers fans popped up around the country. Watanabe Misa had intended for the Tigers to compete with the Beatles and the Monkees for the affections and pocket change of the nation's horny teen girl demographic. And it worked. A little bit too well. And so now the boys were caught in a trap. They had no concept of being celebrities or being idols. And how could they? 
They'd basically gone from being normal high schoolers to having to call the police to be able to leave their home. The Tigers in early 1967 were still just kids who loved rock and roll. But the industry was ruthless, and they were not going to let things like artistic differences fuck up the waves of cash that were about to roll in. The Tigers were different from those foreign groups because, well, they were right there in Tokyo. Not in far off London or Los Angeles, and they quite literally spoke the same language as their fans. Brands could link up with them. Teen girls could connect with them in a way that they just couldn't with the foreign groups. The Beatles were great, yeah, but they were also distant. They spoke a foreign language, and they were part of a foreign culture. They weren't going to fly to Tokyo to film a chocolate advertisement and be available for monthly photo spreads in Myojo magazine. The Tigers lived in your neighborhood. You could talk to them. They were on regular television, not just on billboards. And the other factor here is that the summer of 1967 was tense politically, with many people convinced that the world was on the brink of World War III. America's global anti-communist crusade spilled over into armed conflict in Vietnam, armed conflict in the Middle East, rumblings of a new war on the Korean Peninsula, the provocation of China with the signing of the Asian Treaty. For teen girls, fairy tale princes must have seemed like a nice distraction from the mess that adults were making of the world around them. Critics, on the other hand, did not take so kindly to our fairy tale princes. In fact, they were quite vicious, calling the tigers fake, manufactured. Is it fake? What's happening on stage? The tigers members would later ask themselves, baffled by the accusation. The cheers and the audience clapping along? Is that all fake? In the summer of 1967, the Tigers and manager Nakai finally moved to a new dorm, one away from the hordes of teen girls littering the sidewalks. Sally and Julie shared one room. P and Taro shared another. Taro and Sally's sisters lived in a room upstairs and helped with housework, cooking, and dealing with fan letters and gifts. Sally's beloved younger brother Shiro would also move in bunking with Sally and Julie, and helping with day-to-day -day tasks. Officially, Topol was sharing a room with manager Nakai, but in reality, he had moved to an apartment near Chianti, one with a view of Tokyo Tower. As his dissatisfaction with the tiger's image grew worse, it leaked into his behavior. He began oversleeping, passively aggressively showing up late, or in one memorable instance, simply not showing up for a concert at all. Sally was the group's leader in name, but he wasn't the type to seek out conflict, and rather than confront Topo about his behavior or confront their management, I mean, it's not like the rest of the group loved the fairy tale style either. The tension just simmered. As P later said, we were all good kids. We did what we were told, even if we didn't want to. It was in the middle of all of this that the Tiger's third single, Mona Lisa no Hohoemi, Mona Lisa's Smile, was released on August 15, 1967, another Sugimoto Hashimoto joint. But this time, Sugimoto was not about to suffer through 30 takes of the Tigers to get it right. He hired professional studio musicians. The song has a Baroque pop feel, well in line with what groups like the Left Bank were doing. 
Tedo's electric harmonica, as well as harmonies from Topo and Sally in the chorus, were the charm points. The lyrics, much to Topo's chagrin, I'm sure, are all about crying over a girl who was left while gazing at a picture that hangs like Mona Lisa on the wall. It was an even bigger hit than Seaside Bound. released their first album, that live album, on stage on November 5th, 1967, but it was swallowed by the dark cloud of hysterical fandom that had been tailing the Tigers since Seaside Bound had exploded. And this is now referred to as the Ayame Ikejiken, or the Ayame Pond incident, and it would stop the Tigers' momentum dead in its tracks. Despite their popularity, their record sales, their clean-cut image, their hard work, for the Tigers, there would be no awards, no television appearances, no kohaku tukasen. Not for them, and not for any of the long-haired group sounds bands. Rock, even princely fairy tale rock, had proven to be too dangerous for mere mortals to handle. Here is what happened. On November 5th, 1967, the Tigers were set to record a performance of Mona Lisa no Hohoemi for national broadcaster NHK's Uta no Grand Show, which would then air in mid-November. And this was supposed to be kind of a test run for the real prize, a slot on NHK's Kohaku Utsukasen, the prestigious end-of-the-year musical extravaganza watched by, like, every person in Japan. We are talking bigger than the Super Bowl halftime show bigger than Eurovision. The stakes were incredibly high. Their performance was held at an outdoor stage at the IMA Pond Amusement Park near Osaka. Something like 7,000 fans turned up, completely overwhelming the venue. Due to what we can only assume was a lack of proper crowd control, about 30 girls were injured in the crush, some quite seriously. A newspaper at the time quoted a 16-year-old girl named Junko from her hospital bed. I don't care if I die if I get to see the Tigers play. This was all the proof that the crusty old establishment needed that these guitar bands, these long-haired rockers, were dangerous. 
It wasn't about crowd control or even of the fanning of hormonal young teens' worst instincts by the management company. No, it was the Tiger's fault. The song was cut from the show and the group was banned from NHK. Worse still, schools picked up on this way of thinking and began to crack down on kids who attended concerts, punishing students if they were caught out at a rock show. And in a move that will sound very familiar to any BTS fans listening, Watanabe Productions took all that money the Tigers made for them and did nothing. What could the Tigers do but keep moving forward? They took off on a European trip over the winter holidays to try and get a sense of the market overseas. And on January 5th, 1968, back home they released Kimidake ni Aio, a blazing rock song written, again, by the Hashimoto Sugimoto pair. The thing to listen for is that delicious vocal harmony width, with Julie's strong lead sandwiched between Topo's high tenor and Sally's bass on harmonies. That blend of voices became one of the Tiger's musical trademarks.
despite the controversy, Kimidake Ni got all the way to number two on the Oricon chart. In February 1968, the Tigers began filming for their first movie, a Hard Day's Night inspired romp titled Sekai wa Bokura o Matteru. The world is waiting for us. The Tigers played themselves, a rock band called The Tigers. They played gigs, ran from fans, moved dorms, and rescued a girl crushed by a mob of fans. But the girl, played by a fellow Watanabe Productions ingenue, a pixie-haired singer named Kumi Kaudi, wasn't just some girl. She was a secret space princess who had crash-landed on Earth and had given her minders a slip because now she was in love with Julie. The tigers and the space princess spend some time getting into hijinks, but eventually, you know, she does have to return home to outer space. Except, except, she's fallen in love with Julie. Oh, oh my god. So she tries to kidnap him, but he gently explains that, no, 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 I belong to all the young ladies of Japan, and I cannot possibly marry you. Hey, Julie, come with me. Eh? The chanting voices of the fans at home are enough to break the spell, and Julie returns in time for the Tigers to play at their show at the Budokan. Go, bound! Surprise, surprise, the Tigers hated the script. For one thing, Julie's popularity as the lead vocalist and face of the group was really starting to grate not just on Topo, but on all of the other members. For another, they were really growing tired of the princely image, and I totally get where they're coming from. I do. But as an idol film enthusiast, it's a delight, and a fine addition to the quick cash grab idol film canon. Most of the heavy lifting acting-wise is done by an extremely talented cast of character actors, to include a former Takarazian, and of course the lovely Kumi Kaudi. And the tiger scenes are balanced by a truly hilarious gang of fangirls who call themselves Mrs. Julie, Mrs. Sally, and so on. It's a real window into what fangirl culture of the time must have looked like. <laughs> The theme song of the film was a mega schlocky ballad written by, yes, Sugimoto and Hashimoto, titled Ginga no Romance, or Romance of the Milky Way. And the lyrics go a little something like this. In the Milky Way floats a small white craft. I fondly remember the dream I spent with you. Shubi my love. Shubi my love. My love. Shubi being Kumi Kaori's character name in the film. <laughs>
freckly monster of a song, and Tiger's fangirl started up a tradition of replacing Shuby with their favorite member's name. Topo, my love. Topo, my love. My love. So that seems straightforward enough, right? Trekly ballad sung by a dreamboat prince from outer space. Gotta be a hit. Well, things were never so straightforward for the Tigers. So the B-side to Julie's Space Prince ballad was reserved for a special tie-up with Myojo magazine. I've mentioned Myojo before. It's a long-running, celebrity-focused magazine for young women. It started up in 1952, and the name translates to star, as in stars of the silver screen. Actress Tsushima Keiko was on the cover of the very first issue. And Myojo is actually still publishing, but it's been turned into a 99% Johnny's and Associates focus magazine. But those old issues were more like you know, teen people or something. And Myojo were the ones who coined the term group sounds back in early 1967. They had a large readership and were an influential print outlet. So anyway, Myojo was obviously invested in the stable of celebrities popular with their readers, teen girls. And to that end, they joined forces with the Tigers record company to hold a contest where the winner would get her lyrics sung by the Tigers themselves. She would also get some cash and a drum kit. Quite a prize, right? So this Myojo tie-in song was the song slotted to be the B-side to the big movie theme song total throwaway song. But in an effort to dispel some of the tension that had been bubbling under, Topo was chosen to sing it. The winner, picked from over 130,000 entries, was a 19-year-old girl from rural Hokkaido. Her lyrics, set to a mournful Sugimoto tune, became Hana no Kubigazari, Flower Neck. The tears of the white swan when I put the flower necklace around her neck. She gave a mournful sigh and turned into a woman. The flower necklace is a symbol of our love. Despite his distaste for fairy tale imagery, Topo threw himself heart and soul into the recording. He was a huge fan of the Bee Gees. Not the Saturday Night Fever Staying Alive Bee Gees that we think of today, but these guys. Here I'm going Something's telling me I must go home feeling he tried to channel in his voice for Hana no Kubigazari. Ya 
songs at the Budokan during filming for the movie on March 10, 1968, and the single, with Julie's Outer Space Prince A-Side, was released on March 25th. The Tigers movie premiered two weeks later on April 10th. By April 15th, the Tigers had their first number one song. Not the movie's theme, but rather Topo's B-Side. Radio DJs and fans alike had flipped the disc. Hana no Kubigasari would stay at the top of the charts for seven weeks, selling well over a million copies, and become not just one of the Tiger's most beloved songs, but one of the most beloved songs of the entire era. This was no teen dream ghetto song but a genuine nationwide hit. And the only one not happy about this was Julie. Poor Sawada was shocked and upset that a song without his vocals had become such a huge hit. I mean, he was the lead singer. If he wasn't singing, what use was he in the band? The gesture intended to smooth things over between Julie and Topo had backfired spectacularly. So April wasn't just the Hana no Kubigazari extravaganza, but it also marked the beginning of the Tiger's collaboration with girls magazine, Teen Look, and more importantly, with Meiji Chocolates. Girls could save up and get these massive posters of their favorites. So big, in fact, that they could really only properly be hung on the ceiling. Sales of Meiji chocolates were spurred by a rivalry with another popular group sounds band called The Tempters, who had linked up with rival chocolate manufacturer Morinaga Chocolates. And girls just started buying and giving away chocolate for the bonus goods, and to prove that their group was the best. Now the Tempters were a great group, but more importantly their lead singer, the late Hagiwara Kenichi, aka Shoken or Little Ken, in 1968 was considered by many teen girls across the country to be Julie's top rival for cutest guy in Japan. We will meet him again later, but for right now, all you need to know is that after Hana no Kubigazari started falling in the charts, the Tempters rose to number one with Emeraldo no Densetsu or The Legend of Emerald, an angsty rock song right in line with what the Tigers had been doing. Orchestral flourishes, Maruhen imagery, lyrics about missing emerald green eyes, and this fabulous jangly guitar line from the Tempter's leader and guitarist. Shoken's distinctive vocals 
double-tracked and layered thick on the chorus, cut through the schlock like an arrow, giving a very different feel to the Tempter songs than the Tiger's warm vocal blends. Tiger's vocals might have blended together like a dream, the Tigers themselves, by the summer of 1968, were completely falling apart. Watanabe Productions, clearly not having read Aesop's fable about the goose that laid the golden egg, were determined to squeeze every last drop of gold from the Tigers, even if it killed them. Julie, for the first time, was given solo work, an acting role in a feature film. He took it gladly. Topo, Boosted by the success of Hana no Kubigazari and inspired by his late nights with all of the who's who on the art scenes in Chianti, began insisting that he be allowed to contribute to their music. Piecing together the summer of 1968, what seems to have happened is that during the recording for their sixth single, yet another Sugimoto-produced song, Minami no Shima no Kanibaru, Carnival of the Southern Island, Topol quit the band for the first time. Topol returns, the song is dropped, and their sixth single has no producer listed. She She She, released July 5th, 1968, another number one hit, was written by Kase Kunihiko of The Wild Ones, another group under the Watanabe production umbrella, with lyrics by Yasui Kazumi, aka Zuzu, a Chianti regular, friend of Topo, and a lady we will be seeing again later. She 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 is a frothy delight, playing up the tiger's strength, their vocal harmonies and natural good humor, combined with a bouncy bass line and a loose and easy drum beat. It feels free. <laughs>
the summer of 68 needed all the lightness it could get. To get a sense of why the tigers, especially those tigers who spent their evenings with the intellectual elite at Chianti, might have been feeling unhappy with singing about southern carnivals, here's what was happening across the world. Riots, protests, and war. In America, the assassination of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. led to the burning of African-American neighborhoods in cities like Washington, D.C. In France, students and workers went on strike across the country, sending the nation into panic. And in Tokyo, students took over the campus of the prestigious Tokyo University, Todai, to protest, among other things, high tuition, low acceptance rates, and unfair working conditions of graduate students, in light of recent reports of tax evasion and money laundering from the prestigious university. The students would eventually force the resignation of the entire board of trustees, but 165 universities across the nation would join in the protests. Revolutionary thinking students from Todai would even join in protest with farmers outside the city trying to hold on to their land in the face of development. And they would also face off against the American military using Japan as a staging ground for the war in Vietnam. Watanabe Productions might have preferred that the Tigers stayed firmly grounded in Space Brint's chocolate box idol territory, but they weren't about to kill their golden goose. For their next album, the Tigers' first proper album. The boys from Kyoto would finally have some creative control over their own music, with both Topo and Taro contributing songs, and with all of the members except P getting a song on which they could sing lead. That album was Human Renaissance, released November 25th, 1968. And it was also around this time in late 1968 that the rest of the tigers left the nest, or rather, their dorm, and they took apartments on their own. Taro, Sally, Julie all seemed fine with the change. But P was deeply unhappy and would often say that he wished that they could go back to their pre-debut days of all living together. He began to feel that maybe they didn't have anything special to offer as individuals that the magic had been created by the five of them together as a group, and that unhappiness would only grow deeper over the next two years. Human Renaissance is ambitious, both musically and thematically. It sounds like nothing the Tigers had ever attempted before, and nothing like anything anyone else was doing either. There was no room for schmaltzy songs about dolls from France or bops about going to party down at the beach. Human Renaissance is here to cleanse your soul. Song by song, it strips away whatever meaningless garbage has been cluttering your thoughts and fills that space with the beauty found in sadness and yearning, the beauty found in being human. Topo, if you remember from the previous episode, had been politically aware even as a teen, but the other member who really threw himself in this new direction was good-natured, easy-going drummer P. I mean, there's a reason that P and Topo had first become friends despite the age gap. P might not have been as vocal about it as Topo was, but his mind was sharp, and he also felt the pull of the events happening around them. He'd been deeply affected by seeing the countercultural musical Hair on a trip to New York. 
the musical which tells the story of young people trying to break free of the boundaries and expectations put on them by the cruel adult world seems cheesy now i know but at the time the young people seeing the anti-war anti-establishment story must have felt like they weren't alone that there were others who felt the same way who saw the stupidity of the world around them the lyrics for the majority of the songs on the album were done by Nakanishide, a well-regarded and award-winning poet, novelist, and prominent pacifist. The album opens with a song called Hikari Aru Sekai, There's a Light in the World. Sung by Julie, Nakanishi's lyrics echo the Milky Way romance. But instead of a boat sailing among the stars, our boat has lost its way under a Hoshi Nakiyoru or night sky without stars. The arrangement is bombastic, with Sally's bass vocal anchoring us in a sea of sound. The whole album is incredible and worth an episode just on its own. From the last day of Pompeii-inspired cover, to Sally's mournful church organ solo song. But for now, let's just listen to a bit of two of the standout tracks. Hono Nai Kofune, or The Boat Without a Sail, which has got this hypnotic sixth eight beat of layered vocals from Julie and Sally that feel like waves lapping on the side of a boat, with Topo's piercing plaintive tenor just floating on top as he sings to feeling directionless, like a boat without a sail. And spoiler alert, this song was a good indication of the direction his solo work would go in.
The other song we're spotlighting is Taro's contribution to the album, Aoi Tori, Bluebird. It's a song that would become one of the Tiger's most beloved songs and the final single of the Topo era of the Tiger's career. The lyrics are heartbreaking in their simplicity, and the combination of Julie and Taro's voices is just devastating. Taro's soft, gentle harmonies under Julie's voice are just one of the ultimate treasures in the Tiger's catalog. Taro was rightly very, very, very proud of the song and very moved to hear the orchestral accompaniment for the first time. Not too shabby for a kid from Kyoto. And to think that his parents had dreamed no further than him becoming a banker. And now here he was with a whole damn orchestra playing his music. My bluebird flew off into the wide open sky. I guess it hated that small cage. recording was finished for Human Renaissance, the Tigers began filming for their second film, Hanayaka Naru Shotai, Fabulous Invitation. Although the second film was just as much as a cash grab as the first film, the Tigers now had more influence over their creative direction and it shows. The film, again, has them playing lightly fictionalized versions of themselves, but unlike the first film, they are allowed to play themselves. The film, which has the Tigers playing a high school band who hop a train to Tokyo with not a single yen between them, showcases the Tigers' easy camaraderie and extremely charming personalities. And the songs, taken from Human Renaissance, also give the film a deeper emotional heft than the light bubblegum of the first film. The climax has the Tigers faced with a tough choice, a fabulous celebrity career, or saving the life of a dear friend. Guess which one they pick. In the final scene, the Tigers play Taro's beautiful Aoi Tori on homemade instruments on a field of beautiful flowers outside of a hospital where their friend is well on her way to recovery. Human Renaissance was released on November 25th, 1968. The film was released on December 19th, 1968. On December 24th, the Tigers held a meeting. Topo was tired of being forced to dress up like, for example, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves for a laugh on television, which they had done a few weeks earlier on Fuji. With this last album, the Tigers had proven they were serious musicians. They shouldn't have to make fools of themselves. 
Topol was talked in disdain, saying that they would again be able to write their own album, do their own music. And it worked for a few weeks, but Group Sounds was on the way out, and the comfort of Kaiokyoku was back, baby. And while Tokyo students and the leftists rioted and protested for fair treatment, throwing the nation into crisis, the top song of the second half of 1968, the number one single from basically September 1968 to February 1969, selling almost 3 million copies, was the incandescently corny Koi no Kisetsu by a vocal group called Hinky and the Killers, the dorky group in goofy bowler caps on the cover of every one of those three million copies. no way and Watanabe Productions was going to allow the outspoken Topo with his anti-nuclear activism and political awareness any real freedom. Group sounds may have been on the way out, but the nation still needed a sugary distraction, and forcing Topo to shut up and act the fool was killing him. On March 5th, 1969, during the middle of recording, Topo just went out and never came back. He didn't show up the next day for a television filming or for the recording session the day after that. And with that, nine months after he'd first tried to quit, Topo was finally out of the band. At the end of the day, Watanabe Productions knew that as long as they had Julie, not only the nation's number one heartthrob, but also a man who had no problem wearing makeup and a wig for a laugh, they didn't much care about losing the eternally troublesome Topo, or indeed, the rest of the Tigers. So to find out what happens next, well, tune in next week for the conclusion of the Tigers' story. Mm -hmm.